0: Bourneville, Jonathan Coe's latest novel, ostensibly follows the life of Mary Lamb, née Clark, from V.E. Day 1945, when she was a precocious young pianist, to the darkest depths of the recent pandemic, stopping off at some of the events that helped define and redefine Britain over the last seven decades. Although it might be better to say that the book orbits Mary, for as we hop from the coronation of Queen Elizabeth to the 1966 World Cup through jubilees and the death of Princess Diana, We live not only alongside Mary, but also her parents, her husband, her children and grandchildren, and in a wider sense, the British people as a whole, seeing these events through their eyes and feeling their sense of excitement or despair at the changes and upheavals in their world. It's testament to Jonathan Coe's gift as a storyteller that he can take in such a sweep of history and such a cast of characters without leaving readers feeling shortchanged about the time we get to spend in each era or with each person. And while Coe has long been the master of the British State of the Nation novel, the opportunities offered by such a wide temporal canvas allow him to show even more intricately how details that likely seemed historically insignificant at the time, changing the recipe of a chocolate bar, for example, can have unexpected and far-reaching ramifications as the years unfurl. Bourneville is a poignant, deeply human book, which also, given the current constitutional and political upheaval in the UK, perhaps speaks even more to our times than Jonathan Coe realised it would when writing which is just one of the reasons I'm so happy to say that he joins us to discuss it today. Jonathan, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Very happy to be here. Um,
0: I think I'm going to begin with a slightly sort of unconventional question, which is making reference to your author's note um, at the end of the book and also something that one of your one of your characters says. So you tell us quite quite openly that while Bourneville is a work of fiction, the character of Mary Lamb is based closely on your on your late mother Um, also at a moment in the book uh, you have one of your characters say this I think as you get older as you enter middle age as you and I are now undoubtedly doing you start to become interested in the mystery of your own self and the key to that mystery is the relationship between you and your parents so I'm curious to know. Despite the fact that uh, Bourneville is a work of fiction, was part of the motivation behind it, part of the inspiration behind it, this attempt to get to know your mother better and perhaps in some way unravelling the mystery of your own self?
1: Well, yes, I think that's true and and perhaps true not just of uh, this book, but uh, of many of my more recent books. And perhaps even all my books, I mean, critics and readers have always drawn this distinction uh, in my uh, body of work between the more personal novels as they see them and the more political novels. So uh, in the more personal category, maybe would fall books like uh, The Rain Before It Falls, which is more of a a kind of family saga, and uh, The Terrible Privacy of Maxwell Sim, which is a you know, uh, uh, the character study of one individual. And then um, for the more political titles you have, obviously, uh, the Water Carve-Up and Number 11 and uh, The Rotter's Club and The Closed Circle and so on. Uh, now, to me, increasingly, that's come to seem like rather an artificial uh, distinction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I've come to see uh, all of my books, including the uh, the so-called political ones, really as, as being intensely personal and as having at their root uh, this impulse, which is common to all writers, I think, to to understand oneself and to express oneself. So, um, you know, uh, everything I've written, however much it might look like a state of the nation novel, uh, is at heart an, an attempt to understand myself, I think, and, um, you know, I've always felt, and have increasingly felt uh, since 2016, the Brexit referendum, an intense uh, sense of Englishness as mm-hmm. uh, being a kind of core element of my personality as a, as a writer and a person. And, uh, you know, what England is and what its current place in the world is, has become such uh, a pressing question since 2016. For those of us uh, living here, and uh, you know, it, it's also I realise uh, a key to answering the question of what kind of person am I. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what what is the the nature? How do you solve the puzzle of this uh, strange nation that I uh, belong to?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, you know, Bourneville is very much part and parcel of that entire project. I think. from the very beginning of the novel and two characters, uh, Lorna and Mark, are jazz musicians on a tour of Europe uh, just as uh, the COVID pandemic is uh, appearing on the horizon and they're having a conversation with their uh, record company owner, Ludwig, in Austria. For dinner, they'd been joined by Ludwig, the owner of the record label. He'd brought them to a restaurant called the Café Englander although there didn't seem to be anything very English about it. The food was Austrian and came in generous portions, including a schnitzel which, when it arrived, looked big enough to satisfy even Mark's appetite. Look at that, he said, his eyes gleaming. Just take a look at that. Suzanne and Ludwig beamed, proud that their national cuisine was meeting with such enthusiasm. Only Lorna, who had ordered a salad again, looked disapproving. You've got about three-quarters of a calf there, she said to him, in a low voice, so that the others couldn't hear. Someone like you shouldn't be eating something like that. Someone like me, he said, helping himself to potato salad. You mean someone fat like me? I didn't say that. I would never call you fat. Good, Mark said, because I'm not fat. According to my doctor, I'm morbidly obese. After performing with such intensity for almost two hours, Mark and Lorna would have preferred a light-hearted conversation, but this turned out not to be Ludwig's style. He was in his late fifties with stylish gray hair an austerely trimmed beard, a sharp mind, and an elegant and precise way of speaking. Within a few minutes, he was questioning them about the state of British politics. As you know, Mark, I'm a committed Anglophile. I first came to London in 1977, the height of punk. I didn't like the music much, but the attitude was captivating to a young man who'd grown up in Salzburg, an ultra-conservative city with no counterculture that I'd ever noticed. It was the time of the Queen's Silver Jubilee, I remember, and for a while it seemed everyone was singing either the National Anthem or God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. It was somehow wonderfully revealing of your national character that these two songs could be on everybody's lips at the same time. I think it was then that I also watched a James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me, and listened as the audience cheered when his parachute opened and revealed the Union Jack, again, so British, flattering themselves and laughing at themselves at the same time. I stayed in London for three months, and at the end of it, I was in love with everything I found there. British music, British literature, British television, the sense of humour. I even started to like the food. I felt there was an energy and inventiveness in this place that you didn't encounter anywhere else in Europe. All done without self-importance, with this extraordinary irony that is so unique to the Brits. And now this same generation is doing what? Voting for Brexit and for Boris Johnson. What happened to them? Before either Mark or Lorna could offer an answer to this difficult question, he continued, it's not just me, this is what we're all asking ourselves. You know, this is a smart country we're talking about, a country that we all used to look up to. And now you've done this thing that to us, as far as we can tell, diminishes you, makes you look weaker and more isolated, and yet you seem really pleased with yourselves about it. And then you put this buffoon in charge. What's going on? Mark glanced at Lorna and said, well, where do you begin with that one? I suppose for a start, she said, you begin with the fact that London and England are not the same thing. For sure, said Ludwig. I understand that. And England and the rest of the UK are not the same thing, Mark added. I moved to Edinburgh for a reason. I understand that too, but still you're an Englishman at heart, right? It's not how I define myself. It's not my core identity. I don't think, said Lorna, choosing her words carefully, that there's such a thing as a typical English person. Well, I would like to find one if I could said Ludwig. And when I found them, I would, I would ask them two questions. This new path you've taken in the last few years, why exactly did you choose it? And why did you choose this man, of all people, to lead you down it?
0: There, there's a, um, as I said in the introduction, the sort of it does, there is a scope of 70, 80 years in the book. And yet at the same time, it's bracketed by the pandemic so the the opening to the book is just as the pandemic is is about to, is about to take hold that very strange time when nobody was quite sure what to, to what extent uh, their lives were going to be disrupted and once we get towards the end of the book we we're, we're back into the sort of the depths of the you know the first and the um and the second lockdowns was there something about the the pandemic as a sort of a historical end point to this book and the I guess the end of the second world war as the historical beginning point that felt to you like they were two brackets in a particular chapter of british history
1: um I guess that was one of the uh, that was one of the secondary considerations i mean the but, but uh fundamentally as you Hinted in your in your first question, the time frame of the novel was set by the time frame of my own mother's life, and she Mm -hmm. uh, she she died in June two thousand and twenty, and so that there was no other point in history really that uh, the novel could uh, end, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I wanted to start it as early as as early in her life as I could, in the sense that you know her. Her kind of adult perceptions were beginning to be formed, so I so the mm. book begins when she's eleven years old, um, in uh, in 1945. Uh, but of course, these uh, these dates, uh, quite apart from their relevance to my mother's lifespan, have all other sorts of resonances. And 1945 in uh, in Britain is not just the end of the Second World War, but the the beginning of what we call uh, the post war consensus the birth of the welfare state the rather uh, unexpected uh, election of a labour labour government and the ousting of churchill as, as prime minister and uh, yeah the the creation of uh, the nhs and the and britain's modern welfare system and 2020 uh of course is the year of uh, of the covid pandemic when uh, our lives changed in such Unexpected and radical ways. So, um, the guiding principle was uh, the 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 dates of my uh, my mother's early life and death. But um, you know, it, I immediately felt that there was a there was a very useful match between those and the and dates with a bigger historical resonance. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that um comes across very clearly when you're writing about the pandemic, and then also as we as we live or relive these um these other sort of defining moments in modern British history, is that this kind of tension, I suppose, between how these uh events, in one sense, lived by everybody in the country, or in the case of the pandemic, in the world. And yet, depending on your position in life, your background, your education, your political views, they will be lived differently by by each individual. So there's both kind of a commonality, but also a, I guess, a kind of a a, a dispersion to the to the way to the way in which um, in which these events are lived, and that. I think it's perhaps something which uh, comes across very strongly in this novel, but which is often lost in our telling of history, where often, you know, jubilees or coronations or World Cup victories are presented as these kind of monolithic communal moments.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, um, another kind of inspiration I took for the writing of the book was uh, the chapter in an earlier novel of mine, uh, Middle England, where... Um, most of the characters who've been introduced in the book up to that point are gathered around their respective television sets, watching the 2012 uh, mm-hmm. Olympic opening ceremony, and that was um, that was a very satisfying chapter to write because uh, yeah, it, it enabled me to bring all these very different uh, perspectives and reactions into focus by uh, having everybody at that moment. Uh, concentrating on the same event, and in a very simple, uh, formal decision, really, I just thought, well, there have been a few other occasions in British life in the last seventy-five years where the nation's uh, attention has been similarly focused on the same thing. So the uh, you know the the dates, the the coronation, the marriage of Prince Charles and Lady Diana, Diana's funeral, the World Cup final, they suggested themselves immediately i think i i drew up a short list of nine or ten different uh, possibilities and, and used seven of them in the end and uh a lot of people when i told them the kind of uh, moments that i was going to focus on said oh it sounds like you're writing a novel about the royal family have you been <laughs> taking inspiration from the crown and this kind of thing and i said no it's not that <laughs> uh at all really it's just it just so happens that in in the United Kingdom, uh, so many of these national moments tend to be organised about around uh, royal occasions and royal mm-hmm. happenings. So that the the, uh, the monarchy is very much a backdrop, very very much the scenery, really, to the to the real drama and the real story. As far as I'm concerned, which is the the story of this uh, family who live at an altogether uh, you know altogether humbler level.
0: Another element of the the scenery, so to speak, and obviously a very crucial one because it's from from this that the the novel takes its name, is the the town of bourneville um now this is not a town I've ever visited, but which I think anybody uh who grew up in Britain perhaps at a certain time, I don't know if it still has the same resonances, would immediately associate with chocolate and uh, particularly with the the Cadbury factory. Now of course this uh, from anybody who knows your your life and your work would know the sort of Birmingham, the Midlands, that kind of area, it's very much your your stomping ground. Um but what is it that's specific, do you think, about Bourneville as a as a location, which allowed it to sort of uh, occupy such a, such an important place in this novel?
1: Um, well my uh, my mother was born in Bourneville. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents, her parents lived there and my uh, my grandfather was a was a draftsman at the um, at the Bourneville Chocolate Factory as uh, Mary's father is in the novel. Various of my uh, aunts and uncles worked there. I mean essentially there were two uh, Great, iconic employers in that uh, part of Birmingham. There was the mm-hmm. the Austin car factory in Longbridge, yes. which I've already written extensively about in uh, in the Rosses Club and the Close Circle in Middle England. And uh, there was Cadbury's chocolate, which uh, had always been. You know, it had always been at the back of my mind that that sooner or later I was going to write something. Uh, uh, set around that factory, and uh, and this seemed the uh, the obvious moment to do it. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, I think it sounds weird, but I think chocolate is a very interesting subject. I think um, many people, both as children and even as adults, have a very emotional relationship with chocolate. Uh, and different countries have their own different kinds of chocolate and different mm-hmm. tasting chocolates. And that's interesting in itself. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, I was uh, contacted out of the blue by uh, the French film director, Julie Gavras, who was writing uh, a screenplay about the so-called chocolate wars, which took place in the European Union between through the, the 70s and 80s and 90s and uh, knowing uh, the kind of books that i wrote and uh, knowing where i came from she thought that i would make uh, an interesting collaborator so we we worked together on the screenplay for many years sadly uh you know the money was never raised and the film was never made but um it introduced me to this uh very interesting and um illustrative really a uh, story in, um, in the relationship between different European countries. And uh, I kind of learned for the first time that the chocolate that I'd grown up loving and eating, Cadbury's chocolate, was uh, had for many years effectively been banned in the European Union because it was considered such an inferior product. <laughs> and uh, the French and the Belgians and the Germans in particular were were kind of vigorously opposed to the idea of this uh, being marketed in the EU as chocolate at all. They wanted to call it Vegellate because it had uh, <laughs> uh, too much too much vegetable fat and not enough cocoa butter in it. And, uh, you know, the more uh, Julie and I read around this subject and the more I found out about it, uh, you know, the, the more resonant and interesting I, I started to find it. So, uh, again, another of the um, appeals of writing a book Called Bornville and set in Bourneville, was that it provided a way into this uh, way of writing about and discussing uh, the workings of the European Union in its most uh, absurd form, but at the same time, in some ways, it's kind of most interesting and admirable form because at the end of this thirty years of squabbling about what was and wasn't chocolate, the different European countries did uh, reach an agreement and. That uh, that strikes me as a very good uh, metaphor, if you like, for how the European Union is uh, can be a better way of solving differences between nations than uh, than shelling each other or whatever.
0: Hmm. We'll talk um more about the chocolate wars in a bit, but just staying with um with bourneville as as a place, one thing I found fascinating in the sort of descriptions of it and particularly the descriptions of its history was that it was founded very much as part of that sort of moment i guess in uh in British industrial history where I guess perhaps it was at a similar time to the sort of the Roundtree's factory in 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 Yorkshire as well, where you had this kind mm. of almost sort of th- philanthropic uh industrialism so it was sort of it was uh, built by the the Cadbury uh, brothers or the Cadbury family with, at the, as you write, at the heart of their project, their goal was the amelioration of the conditions of the working class. So it was almost, I wouldn't go quite as far as to say a sort of a utopian uh, community, but it certainly seems to represent a certain idea of uh, sort of improvement and um, in some way a kind of relationship between the different classes in Britain, which seems to have sort of so utterly uh, disappeared from the, from the from the political debate.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people uh, who I knew on the left kind of used to make fun of this idea. And, uh, you know, when, whenever I would wax sentimental about Bourneville, they would say, oh, you know, it's it just... Uh, it's still capitalism it's still exploitation mm-hmm. they're just uh putting a putting a benign veneer on it and so on but uh you know my my family's experience their their lived experience really was that it was uh, a great place to live and a great place to work and my grandfather up until his dying day uh, could never speak highly enough of the Cadbury family and what it had been like to be uh a Cadbury's employee, and you know, uh, for someone in a in a relatively mm-hmm. uh, modest job, they lived in a very mm-hmm. what now looks like uh, a very beautiful house in a very uh, leafy and tranquil suburb of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Goodness knows what those houses are worth now. So certainly, uh, vastly <laughs> more than the, than the Cadbury workers ever had to pay for them, and. Um, yeah, the Cadbury's were Quakers. They were, as you say, philanthropists. They, uh, they were, they were making uh, chocolate originally for drinking chocolate as an alternative to alcohol, because uh, they were also trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, do something about um, the problem of of, of uh, alcohol consumption among uh, working class people as well back in the nineteenth century. And um, yeah, now of course uh, Cadbury was sold to Kraft, and then I think it's been sure. sold to somebody else since then. A lot of the chocolate manufacturer, particularly the the kind of famous dairy milk brand, has been contracted out to uh, Poland. I think most of it is made. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the original factory buildings is now given over to a theme park mm-hmm. called Cadbury World, where you can. You can kind of uh, tour around on a little train and get free samples of chocolate and this kind of thing. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, the 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 symbolism writes itself really into, in terms right. of showing what is, uh, how that model of benign capitalism has panned out and how it's, you know, it's now been, uh, you know, swallowed up by neoliberalism and globalism like, like so much else. Mm
0: hmm. Um, you've mentioned a few times, uh, about how, so the character of Mary was inspired by your mother and also, you know, certain, there are certain parallels between the family and your own from the perspective of sort of writing that and crafting a fiction from that, how, how did you go about deciding what of your own story and your family story and what of your mother's character you wanted to include in in Bourneville and you wanted to, to make plot points out of. And what did you want it to sort of uh let's say embellish or or reinvent as as fiction?
1: Um the portrait I draw of my mother in this uh in this book is um I intend it to be and I hope it is uh very accurate and non-fictional really. I mean, I've, I've tried to show her exactly as I remember her. Uh, I used letters and diaries that she kept in, hmm. the, uh, in the 1940s and 50s. And uh, the, the, the key dates in Mary's life, like her marriage and the birth of some of her children and so on, uh, correspond to mine. Um, pretty much everything else uh, that surrounds that is completely fictional, uh, partly because, you know, I didn't want to uh, write about living relatives. Uh, mm-hmm. But that wasn't really the reason at all. Uh, I mean, the, the the reason was that the the material that uh, real life presented to me in, in other respects was just not useful for the book and not right for the mm-hmm. book. Uh, for, I mean, my mother had uh, two sons, me and my brother, and I very early on in the planning of the book took the decision to give her three sons because uh, those three boys, Jack and Martin and Peter, uh, were necessary to represent uh, different strands, different points of view. Uh, to uh, you know, two two sons was. Uh, too binary, too simplistic. Uh, That Mm -hmm. that didn't seem to be working at all. And um, some of the events that I'm writing about in the novels, I wasn't alive for, such as the the coronation and the days, so I had to invent everything there. Um, Others, such as the World Cup final and the investiture of Charles as Prince of Wales in 1969, I'm too Young to remember anything about very much, and um, kind of ironically, I suppose the other two main royal events in the book—the uh, marriage of Charles and Diana, and the death of Diana—I um, don't have very strong direct memories of myself because I kind of I kind of ignored them, particularly Charles <laughs> and Diana's wedding, which I which I could which I can remember taking a very conscious. And kind of sulky decision not to watch with the rest of my family, I just uh, you know, as as the character of Peter does in the in the book, you know, I just mm. kind of went upstairs and listened to music and read books or something, you know, I didn't want. To. <laughs> uh, I was I was making a, a, a militant display of of lack of interest in that, mm-hmm. and uh, with uh, with Diana's funeral, although I was uh, living in London when in in the week that ran up to that. Um, I didn't uh, you know, I didn't go down with to look at the flowers that were being laid in Kensington Palace or anything like that, and the, the atmosphere that I try to evoke in the book of this uh, kind of massive convergence of, uh, of mourners on uh, Buckingham Palace and, and Westminster Abbey. Uh, I didn't actually witness any of that at firsthand. It, it comes from mm-hmm. research and using my imagination
0: yeah 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 on the subject of that research um was there a sort of a different tenor? of you and I'm not so much specifically the events themselves, but I'm thinking of more of the the sort of the the social let's say conditions and mores uh that were present at the time that you um I guess there must have been quite a big difference so for example writing about the the early 80s or the late 90s and knowing what certain sort of social attitudes were and how people spoke and how people interacted with each other compared to let's say the the VE day one's or the coronation episode where I guess you know that did did the the way in which people acted the way in which people responded their different views on things was that things that came from your from your mother's diaries from some research of contemporaneous accounts or was it more sort of projecting back on the sort of from the sort of general trajectory of uh of change in the in british society
1: yeah i I always feel um that i'm not on my uh on my home turf on my safest ground when i'm writing about uh eras which i haven't uh lived through myself Mm -hmm. i don't do it very often. I did. I did it in uh, a book called Expo Fifty Eight yes. a few years ago, which is entirely set in the in the late nineteen fifties. Um, and there's a bit of it in the rain before it falls. But uh, mm. but yeah, you're you're right. As, as soon as I got to uh, the section about Charles and Diana's wedding, and then Diana's funeral, and then the COVID pandemic, which I think is all is more than half of the book uh, altogether. Then I I've I felt started to feel comfortable again and and was writing about things that I uh, had quite what writing about eras that I had still mm-hmm. quite a vivid personal memory of um, with V day and the coronation yes my uh, my mother's diaries were useful um, uh, you know the one of the reasons um, I write the kind of novels uh, that I do, set in the present day, is uh, kind of at the back of my mind. I suppose the distant hope that in uh, in years to come they can be read by people who will who will be able to uh, read them and think, okay, so that was what that was how people were talking in two thousand fifteen or two thousand twenty or whatever. That those mm-hmm. were the kind of things people were saying. Those were the kind of things people were discussing. And so similarly with the forties and fifties, a lot of uh, what I draw on is is not uh, history, although of course I read a lot of uh, uh, of histories of that time as well, but novels from the era uh, and books, you know, novels which I, I hope give uh, a kind of record of the way that the way that people talked and the way that people behaved to each other, and uh, movies, of course, as well, because mm-hmm. uh, I've always loved uh, British movies of the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. And although uh, the account they give of people's behaviour at that time is stylized and theatricalised and so on, uh, I still think it uh, gets you much closer to the way that people talked and behaved in real life than a, than a history can possibly do. So mm-hmm. um, I immersed myself in a lot of uh, 40s and 50s films, which is what I like doing anyway, so there was no, uh, no hardship there.
0: There is... Um... I mean, it's not, I wouldn't quite go as far as to say a refrain in the book, but there's a phrase which, um, which comes up a, at least a couple of times. Um, everything changes and everything stays the same. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of uh, English national character. Um, in your research and in your sort of reliving of these moments and exploring your family and and getting to know these characters that you have created, do you sense a do you think over the last seven or eight decades that you're writing about, there has been a shift in the British national character? Or do you think it's more as that that sentence suggests that sort of there is something relatively sort of deep rooted, which you know manifests itself in different ways and some of them positive and some of them negative, but which has essentially remained unchanged in in that period of time?
1: Uh well you know i think that what i believe is is exactly summed up in that phrase really that uh, that some things change uh, radically and, and other things don't change at all um what's I, I mean to take an obvious example which uh the book uh tries to tackle at several moments britain has become a much more multicultural society since uh, since the 1940s and, uh that has been at times a painful process as the book shows uh, but um ultimately it's been a very welcome and a very successful process and uh, and uh here we are here we are today with a with a much more uh rich a much more diverse a much more interesting I think uh cultural mix and um you know what's uh, significant about the the phrase that you have uh, homed in on is that in the at the beginning of the book, I mean this phrase is is uh, spoken not out loud, it's it's thought twice uh, by two different women who are standing on exactly the same step of exactly the same house, uh, sweeping the step and listening to the noise of uh, school children playing in the playground down the road. Uh, the difference is that uh, one of them is uh, a white woman, Mary's mother doll, in 1945. And at the end of the book, in uh, 2020, uh, it's uh, an Iranian woman who has come to Birmingham as a refugee and has now made a life for herself there. And both of these women are also looking back on their own school days and uh, being reminded of them by the sound of the children playing. But of course, they're they're thinking about uh, completely different places. Um but uh you know fundamentally this process of uh, of memory of remembering their own childhoods and of uh, hearing the noise of the children the sound of the children playing and and feeling it as a kind of uh, emblem of of continuity and of progress is uh common to both of these women from from very different backgrounds. Uh, and, you know, it's those fundamentals, really, those those fundamentals in human nature, uh, whatever your, uh, whatever culture you come from, whatever country you come from, that uh, the book is ultimately trying to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that for those of us who, those of us who follow politics quite closely, who uh, read about history, who watch the news all the time, uh, who fret about you know the direction their countries are heading in and so on where mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of an unusual and exceptional thing to do. I think we I think we tend to forget that 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 most people uh, don't necessarily pay the same kind of attention and uh, nor should they and nor do they need to you know what? what most people are getting on with is bringing up their families, uh, educating themselves and their children, earning a living, putting food on the table, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I wanted the book to have the sense that even though, yes, in the background, these uh, supposedly history-defining ceremonies and occasions are taking place, um, actually for for the family... Life goes on, much as it will before. Just as you know, fundamentally, uh, in the last few weeks, we've kind of in in Britain, we've sort of done the previously uh, unimaginable and passed over from the era of Queen Elizabeth II to the era of Mm -hmm. Charles, King Charles III. And uh, really, does this make much difference to the texture of our daily lives? I I don't think that it does. It, It it feels momentous at the time, and then. Uh, a few days later, you kind of forget that it's happened. So um, mm-hmm. it's the it's the the small, ordinary, quotidian details of everyday life that I wanted to emphasize in this book, and the uh, uh, the the historical occasions, as I've as I've said before, are uh, the backdrop, the scenery.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the. Um one of the sort of examples of Englishness or perhaps Britishness that is uh, sort of re- repeatedly uh, referred to in the book. And I, I felt quite primed to notice this because of a, another recent guest uh, on the podcast. What's this figure of James Bond? Because um, I, I recently spoke to the writer, John Higgs, who's written this book about oh, yeah, yeah. James Bond and the Beatles, right? Love and let and sort of 60, exactly. Um, yeah. And it did, it did strike me though, while reading uh, Bourneville, how this kind of, uh, this character of Bond is, I guess, in a weird sort of example of this sort of so everything changes, but everything stays the same. I mean, the sort of the most recent Daniel Craig Bond is in one case completely unrecognisable from the original Sean Connery Bond or mm-hmm. even the Bond of Fleming's books. And yet ostensibly the the character has continued unchanged and or survived unchanged over this period of um, of 60 years.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, um, I always knew that at some point I was going to write a book where the figure of uh, James Bond played um, an important role. Um, I, you, you know, I guess you have to you have to step outside your own country often to see how it's perceived. And I, I remember being um, at a book fair in Belgium, where um, where the British, where Britain was the the kind of guest of honor that year, and there were a lot of British writers present, and we were all brought on stage, and we were flanked by two actors wearing costumes, and uh, took me a moment to realize uh, who they were meant to represent, and one of them was Mary Poppins, and the other one was James Bond, and uh, <laughs> I suddenly thought, wow, this this is uh, this is how we're seen, f- you know, from. <laughs> uh, from outside and the, char- the character of uh, that got me thinking about the-, the character of Bond and what a curious kind of icon he is for Englishness really because um, I mean I, I say Englishness because I think Fleming's Bond is English of course he's been played by Scott, he's been played mm-hmm. by a Welshman he's been played by an Irishman um, and uh but, you know, when you when you look at him, and I'm sure uh, John Higgs went into this in a, in a lot of detail, he's he's in many ways, not just not an admirable figure, but a positively cancelable mm. figure these right. days. And his uh, his sexual attitudes, his racial attitudes, ev- ev- everything else, uh, his sadism, the fact that he's an, an assassin, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's. It's very strange to have him as a as a national figurehead in some ways. Um, one of the moments I wanted to home in on was uh, a vivid memory of mine, which was being in the cinema in 1977. So I would have been uh, pushing 16 when The Spy Who Loved Me, the Roger Moore film, came out. And it, it opens with a sequence where he, he skis off the edge of a cliff and yes, the parachute yes. opens uh, to reveal an enormous uh, Union Jack. And there was an incredible <laughs> eruption of... Of laughter and applause and cheering in the cinema when that happened, and uh, I, um, I say in the in the passage where I'm describing that in the book that Jack, in particular, the older of the three sons, is very excited by this moment because it, it chimes with a particular uh, combination which has started to define his character, which is a combination of facetiousness and nationalism. Mm-hmm. and i think that's um i think that is a very british or perhaps even a very english thing and you know also defined uh i think our relationship with uh, the european union and uh again the book touches on uh boris Johnson's role as a journalist in in fostering mm-hmm. this attitude this this idea that you know not only were we um bedeviled by a kind of feeling of exceptionalism and a sense that we were in some ways too special to belong to this uh, to this community uh, but also that we were encouraged not to take it seriously to see it as a bit of a joke mm-hmm. and as soon as you start uh, appealing to uh, the English let's say on that level then uh, you're you're using a very uh, Powerful and persuasive line of attack, I think, because something in our national character responds to that, uh, to that invitation not to take things seriously uh, very eagerly. We're we're very quick to do that,
0: Mm -hmm. and that is um, something as well very much connected to the uh, the Second World War as well, and of course Bond as a character was born. You know, in Fleming's novel, shortly after the Second World War, like in the early years of the of the Cold War. But at, at a moment, you talk about, um, or you put the words into one of your characters' mouths, who talks about the danger of winning a war, um, and the fact that it gives you a sense of um, of triumph and achievement. And later on, you also refer to a uh, the Second World War fixation that um, that Britain has uh, had and continues to have, and this also really interestingly ties in with this idea of, of chocolate because this um, seemingly it was during the second world war that the recipe of dairy milk uh, was changed you know the, the the level of cocoa solids was reduced and that's one of the things would ultimately see it full foul of the, the French and the German's definitions of um, mm-hmm. of chocolate but it, but also it seems that it evokes something about that time which has always seemed to me very curious um but also very powerful in in Britain or perhaps perhaps in England of this sort of almost nostalgia for for the war which obviously um strangely seemed to be felt by people who were too young to actually remember it and the people you know these were the people who seemed to to drive a lot of the the discussion um around uh, around Brexit but it does seem that there's something massively totemic about the um the the british victory in the second world war which in some way seemed to to translate as the country having a bit of its chip on its shoulder
1: yeah um you know some people see uh see brexit as a a a massive shift in the british national story and and a kind of big moment of of change in our uh relationship with with the rest of europe um more and more i i I see it not as a kind of pivotal moment of change but as a moment when we revealed ourselves and understood ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more clearly uh because the um This sense again of the kind of exceptionalism of uh, the British and their their different relationship to the rest of Europe um, links back, I think, to this uh, myth that we that we won the war single handed, that it was our finest hour, that uh, we and that it kind of kind of brought the country together in some ways and and showed us uh, at our best. And um, as you say, this is uh, this seems to be felt most strongly by people who weren't actually uh, who didn't actually live through it. And in fact, um, Mary in the novel and my mother in real life certainly had no nostalgia for the war at all. and the the only story she ever told me about the war actually is the, is the one that I uh, retell in uh, in Bourneville about... Um, her terror, as a six-year-old, I guess, of uh, being in the cinema with her mother and watching uh, Disney's Pinocchio and the air raid sirens um, sounding overhead, and them having to run for their lives back to uh, back home and back into the Anderson shelter. And her main memory of uh, of one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-nine to one thousand, nine hundred and forty-five was was terror, really. Um, whereas it's her son uh, Jack. Who uh, grows up on a diet of uh, kind of boys' comics, which which tell a series of stories of heroic uh, British um, daring do in defeating the the dastardly mm-hmm. Germans and the dastardly Nazis? Who uh, grows up with a very different uh, narrative of the Second World War, and his um, uh, you know his feelings about that start to emerge in the third section of the book, set in nineteen sixty six, when uh, Britain played. Uh, It's when England played its World Cup final against West Germany, and uh, you know, people think that this um, this tendency to link everything back to World War Two started with Brexit or was uh, was was focused around Brexit. But you know, then I then I came across this extraordinary uh, sentence from a Daily Mail. Uh, article written in one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-six when the the World Cup final took place, and uh, the Daily Mail sports football correspondent wrote, uh, "You know, it, it doesn't really matter today, the day of the final, uh, whether we whether the Germans defeat us at our national sport, because after all, we defeated them at theirs twice." And uh, you know, <laughs> again, this this sense, this combination of uh, facetiousness and uh, slightly. Slightly nasty nationalism, um, you know, is is there for all to see in in utterances like that from from uh, from way before Brexit ever happened.
0: Mm. And even one of the ones that resonated with me mainly because uh, it was our family car when I was growing up was the uh, when you tell this the story of the. Uh, the advert for the Austin Metro. Um so this uh, <laughs> this new car being produced I think out of British Leyland. Uh yeah. and the um the, just the the um motifs of the the Second World War, the White Cliffs of Dover, like the everything about it it was uh drawing on this idea of um the Second World War. And that was released in what, 1981. So we're talking
1: already 35 yeah, years after. Yeah yeah it's it's an incredible advert i i read about it uh, for the first time in in andy beckett's um, history of the early uh, 1980s and uh, and then i found the um, found the advert on youtube where where anybody can can see it and you know i was i was kind of open-mouthed really as at the at the brazenness <laughs> of the world war 2 imagery that the the british cars lined up on the white cliffs of Dover ready to defend, the, uh, the the ship arriving on the beach and disgorging hordes of, uh, of Nissans and Citroens and Audis and so on. Uh, and then the Union Jacks, the bunting, the, the old veterans saluting in the doorway of his village <laughs> cottage and, and this kind of thing. I mean, it's subtle. It, it isn't. sounds like a parody. It does sound like a parody, uh, but, you know, even back then, uh, in fact i think uh you know even the the tagline for the car was that driving this will be your finest hour so uh, right. <laughs> you know it, it goes it goes right back to to churchill and, and all of that and uh yeah you know, this has been a a constant basically in uh, in the british psyche from from 1945 mm-hmm. onwards
0: having spent uh quite a few years bumping around on the black on the back seat of a an austin metro i could say i could probably say with quite a, a lot of assurance that it wasn't the <laughs> the finest hour but but one thing wasn't that can actually uh, okay certainly certainly not <laughs> but um one thing that i think works really well in bourneville and maybe this connects to uh your the idea you talked about earlier of um sort of representing how things were spoken how people thought how people lived is the sort of the incorporation of text um and i mean that in the sort of the broadest sense into the book so whether it's um the the king's speech on ve day whether it's uh television commentary from uh princess diana's funeral or whether it's the like the really quite cold and clinical texts from the the rules for the 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 covid lockdowns uh you mm. i think you you give these a certain sort of um prominence at certain sections in the book which um i thought really effectively uh particularly obviously the i suppose more so for the the periods that i had personally lived through which really seemed to sort of to to ex- excavate something about the the feeling of the times
1: yeah well you know it's it's a great benefit of writing in the internet age that that all of these things are so easily retrievable now, and mm-hmm. it, and anyone can go online uh, and watch the coronation with the original Richard Dimbleby uh, commentary, and and then uh, you know however many years later, forty uh, something years later, you can see the uh, Diana's funeral with his son David Dimbleby's mm-hmm. commentary. And it's quite fascinating, apart from anything else, just to uh, analyze these as texts and to see how uh, language has changed in that time. I mean, I was uh, the, the the David Dimbleby commentary on Diana's funeral was was not so surprising to me because it's the it's the kind of uh, discourse that I've grown up with. But the the Richard Dimbleby comment, uh, coronation commentary is really very florid and poetic, and. Um, you know, it it is kind of a, aspires to, and some sometimes comes close to reaching a, a kind of Shakespearean quality, which he obviously thought was uh, was appropriate to the the kind of grandeur of the occasion. And uh, you know, just just on a, the level of comedy, it was it was fun to juxtapose that with uh, the kind of comments <laughs> that I would imagine the families actually gathered around their television sets were were making by way of response. Um, mm-hmm. And juxtaposing it with yeah, other
0: activities, uh, which I'm not going to to reveal to our readers, but
1: uh, yes, <laughs> yes, a, yeah. <laughs> that as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, it was it was just another way of getting into that theme of uh, drawing out the the relationship between, but also, but more importantly, the contrast between what is going on. Uh, on our television screens by way of what is being presented to us as history and public life and what is really going on in the in the lives of people who are at the receiving end of this and just sitting mm. around watching or ignoring uh, what's taking place.
0: Yeah. Um, we are running quite low on time, but I, I would like to just finish with that idea of, I suppose, uh, which we've touched on a few times uh, throughout this this conversation, this idea of the people being on the on the receiving end, because one thing you said very early in the conversation was about this sort of this weird way that what had happened around Brexit had in some way made you more aware and more in touch with with your Englishness. And one of the things I appreciate about Bourneville and also um, about um, Middle England and something that I have felt in the last sort of uh, six, seven, however many years it has been, is this sort of this strange desire almost to sort of to want to celebrate the things that are good about this country there seems to be a lot that is a lot of time that is spent sort of talking uh about the sort of the the terrible things for very good reason because you know there are a lot there have been a lot of you know, awful politicians and a lot of terrible events over the past uh, however many years and yet one way that i think what it seems to me you seem to um express what is clearly a deep rooted affection for a certain element i guess of englishness it does seem to be by getting in touch with the let's say the people on the ground so to speak so even though we have talked a lot about the the sort of these big pivotal moments the the sort of the the affection the humour and the humanity i suppose seems to rest in the sort of the 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 affection you feel as a writer for the for the everyday
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think one's country is exactly like uh, one's family. You don't uh, you don't choose it. You're born into it. You have you have no choice in the matter. Uh, and certain aspects of it, uh, certain members uh, of it, will piss you off enormously. But uh, <laughs> but but finally, uh, for for most of us, there is a kind of enduring love. Which, which doesn't go away and which, uh, which survives all that. So it seemed perfectly appropriate to me to, to combine a, a national story with a family story because the two things are, uh, are very similar in my mind. Um, also, as, uh, as I've gone on writing over the last uh, 30 years, I've, I've increasingly come to feel that the, the strength of a novel for me or the kind of novel that I want to write is its capacity for polyphony and mm. for uh, combining uh, many different voices, many different perspectives, many different attitudes, and just uh, just presenting to them, them, to the reader, as, as faithfully and uh, truthfully and as generously as you can. I think when I started out as a writer, so I'm, I'm looking back uh, towards uh, what a carve-up here 25 years ago um, 30 years ago actually I wrote that uh, a, a lot of people still uh, tell me that that's their their favorite of my novels and there is a kind of uh, anger and energy in that book which uh, you, you probably uh, won't find uh, in Portville uh, but to me uh, I have you know I have problems rereading that book and looking back on it because I, I feel that it editorializes a lot and it it uh, it's what Milan Kundra would have called a thesis novel, uh, in that it, um, you know, it, it pushes a particular uh, political and moral moral line, uh, which uh, which Bourneville doesn't really want to do. I mean, obviously, uh, as a private citizen, personally, uh, my sympathies are with certain characters in the novel and, and not with other characters in the mm-hmm. novel. But I've but I've tried uh not to uh, make it a judgmental book, because um, you know as uh, these public occasions strangely remind us, we're a very, um, uh, we're a very various and mysterious uh, body of people in some ways. And this came home to me really during the uh, during the, the twelve days of mourning uh, for the Queen's death recently, where uh, you know, as you probably saw, we had this extraordinary phenomenon of the queue, where uh, mm-hmm. people um, queued in some cases for twenty or twenty-four hours to uh, to have a few seconds um, alone with the uh, uh, viewing the the Queen's coffin, and my. As someone who's not much of a royal royalist, my initial response to this was a kind of slight, uh, um, slight sneeriness, I suppose, that it was just, a, just a, a ridiculous way to behave. But the more I watched news reports about this and the more I listened to the way people were talking about it, the more I realized how much uh, it meant to people and, that, and how... How happy, how satisfied, how pleased people were when this, when they'd uh, done this, and um, I thought, yeah, my, you know, my, my, my first instinct as a, as the more kind of satirical writer I, will, I probably was thirty years ago would, would maybe have been to, to take the piss out of this situation, but, but in fact, um, you know, uh, now even though it's, you know. Very, very far removed from the kind of way that I would behave. I'm, I'm more kind of uh, intrigued and curious about it, and just, just want to present these different uh, manifestations of uh, of human behaviour as, as faithfully as I can.
0: Hmm. So next, Jonathan Coe novel, twenty twenty four, The Queue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um some someone's doing it i have no doubt i think it'll be a, i think <laughs> it'll sure. be a film i think it'll be a film actually the queue. yeah
0: <laughs> well well in that case you you know you will get you will get a uh royalties for that uh, for that idea people heard it here uh, heard it here first um Jonathan that is really all we've got time for it's been such a pleasure speaking to you today um Bourneville is of course available from Shakespeare and Company from our bricks and mortar store from our website it will also be available uh, in French very soon we have a lot of French listeners to this podcast so you have the choice of which uh, of which language to to read
1: this wonderful new novel in uh,
0: all that remains for me to say is Jonathan Coe thank you so much for joining us today
1: Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a pleasure. And if you do read it in French, then uh, the translation by Marguerite Capel, as always, is is absolutely fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Freiman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.